You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is Luke 1, verses 26 through 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for this story that you have given to us in the Gospel of Luke. We are so thankful that it is not just a story, but it is true, that it is real, that the Lord Jesus has come to dwell among us. And so we are thankful for these things, and we pray that you would use your word now to shape and form your people more and more into Jesus' image. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. 
It's good to see you all, everyone. Merry Christmas. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after this service. Uh, We are now two weeks into a very long walk, Lord willing, uh, through the gospel according to Luke. And this is just a power-packed section that you just heard Karen read. Uh, Speaking of power, when I was a sophomore in high school, a local church in town brought a group in for the youth group, but they they invited like every youth group in town to see. Oh yeah, it's the torch night, thanks. Hey, you guys need to just like make yourself known. Uh, It's a torch night. If you are a fourth through sixth grader and you would like to think about Luke 1 and Mary's song here with Cedric and Jordan, you guys can head on out with them. All right. Back to where I was, youth group in Texas. Uh, yeah, so this, uh, this church brought in someone called the God's Titans. And then like a year or two later, they brought in another group similar but different called the Power Squad. And I don't know if you've ever seen any uh, groups like this, but they would like these huge ripped up dudes would come up and they would like tear... Uh, phone books in half and perform incredible feats of strength for teenagers, all for the glory of the Lord. Uh, They would then share the gospel after they lifted like huge weights over their heads, uh, for Jesus, of course. Uh, And if you're not a Christian, or you're new to this Christianity thing, or you weren't a Christian in the 90s, all of that might sound very weird, and it was. Uh, (laughs) uh, Though hopefully those kinds of like power squads we're just a thing of the 90s. Uh, the point is that we humans have always been attracted to power, no matter the decade. We want it for ourselves, and we want to see it in others. I recently reread an old blog post that observed that the foremost prevalent forms of power that we seek after in the world are often, and also, the foremost popular uh, magazines on the rack that you might see, like waiting uh, at the grocery store. Things like Sports Illustrated, We want to see greatness and power on the athletic field. We want our team to crush the others. And we can often be dejected when our team wasn't quite as powerful as we thought they were. Or another magazine like Glamour, thinking about beauty as power. We observe the beautiful in our culture, living the lives that we think that we want. So we spend inordinate amount of time and money trying to look like the powerful, beautiful people. Or beat ourselves up in comparison because we don't have their power. Or a third magazine like Forbes, money as power. We love the self-made entrepreneur. We kill ourselves at work to make sure that we are the one to get the next promotion or raise, or just the respect of those in the office. We want to be the ones to dictate the way that things go. Or a fourth magazine like People, People magazine, or charisma, or personality as power. We long to learn from and even worship those who people are just drawn to, for whatever reason. Most of us uh, have personalities in our life, people we know that we read, to, we read or listen to or watch who just naturally draw us and others in, and we like the power that they have. We're attracted to it, and we want some of that for ourselves. Well, this week in Luke, on the heels of what we've considered with last week in Zechariah, we're going to see power and weakness as they are considered or reconsidered in the kingdom of God. What looks to be one thing is actually the other. There is a great reversal in the economy of God. And so the next two Sundays in Luke are really two songs. There is Mary's song and Zechariah's song. If you come from a Catholic background, you likely know these two songs as the Magnificat and the Benedictus. 
You might have or still have those songs memorized as prayers or even sung two songs. These two, I think, though, have rightly been called the last of the Hebrew Psalms. We'll see that these two songs, this week and the next, use much of the language and the poetry of the Psalms and other Hebrew songs, but we might even consider them to be the first of the Christian hymns. These are great Christmas passages, for sure, but they are more than that. They describe reality for eternity. And so before we get to Mary's song, we're going to take an on-ramp of the narrative and then break up the song into two halves. So we're going to consider this whole section that you heard Karen read in three sections. The narrative section, first, of he comes to the humble, and then he looks to the humble, the first section of the song, and then he scatters the proud. So he comes to the humble, he looks to the humble, and he scatters the proud. So right away, Luke begins setting up a similar story with Mary that he also gave us last week with Zechariah. Both Zechariah and Mary are troubled with the appearance of the angel Gabriel. There's even reference to six months in both of them. Gabriel tells Zechariah and Mary to not be afraid. The phrase and news of bearing a son is very important in both stories here. Gabriel tells both that a son, this son, will be great. Both accounts then say, and replying to the angel, or Zechariah and Mary both said to the angel, the angel Gabriel has appeared here in a very similar way that he appeared last week that we saw in the temple to Zechariah. And he appears to Mary, and he tells her that she has found favor with God. This greeting, as we read it in our ESV or the English Standard Version, where Gabriel says, greetings, O favored one. Now, this is almost certainly a better translation than the traditional King James translation of Hail Mary, full of grace. It's where that verse get, or that word and that even Catholic prayer comes from. This verse, Hail Mary, full of grace, is almost certainly better translated as Gabriel just saying, greetings, favored one of the Lord. She she has certainly found favor with God, and she has certainly now been set apart by God, set apart from all women before and after, as the human mother of our Lord. This is exactly what we'll see Elizabeth say to her. She is not the source of grace or overflowing with saving grace to others. She has found favor because she will bear a son who is the son of God. And this son, Gabriel tells her, is to be called Jesus. And oh yeah, he will reign on David's throne forever. If she wasn't weirded out enough already, this Gabriel tells her, this is David's son and he will reign on the throne. More than that, his kingdom will have no end. This is truly wild. Now, if the promises of winter ending began last week, the snow beginning to melt with Elizabeth and Zechariah of bearing a son in the spirit of Elijah, a prophet who would come to prepare a way for the king, now Messiah is coming. The hopes and expectation of all of Israel's life and history are about to be met. But Mary asks, how can this be? She is seemingly responding very similarly to the way Zechariah responded to Gabriel last week. And we called Zechariah's response to the angel a faithless response. But while Zechariah asked, how will I know this this week, or last week, Zechariah saying, how will I know this? How will I come to understand that through physical processes, my wife and I, though very old, will become pregnant? How will this be? How will I know this? Mary is similarly, but differently, asking, maybe even reminding the angel of her own righteousness by saying, uh, like, how can this be? 
You know, because like I'm only probably 14 or 15 years old. I have no husband. I have definitely never been with a man in that way. But even if her words are the same, which they're a little different, but even if they were the same as Zechariah's, we can, just think about your own words and your own heart, we can often speak the very same words with a different motivation behind those words, with a different heart behind it. And we know that while Gabriel struck Zechariah speechless, he patiently answers Mary's question here. He is able to determine, like an inquisitive question from Mary that is not fueled by unbelief, but she's just like, wait, what? I believe, but how? How can this be? To which Gabriel says, the power of the Most High God will overshadow you and create in you the impossible. What is impossible here, God makes possible. And he says, he, he will come to her, he will overshadow her, which is the same kind of phrase that Luke will yet later use when the Holy Spirit comes again and does what Jesus tells the disciples in Acts 1.8, that the Holy Spirit will come to them and they, the disciples, will receive power. It's almost exactly what Gabriel is saying will happen here with Mary. Then in Acts 1 and here in Luke 1, the, both the church and Mary both have very clear pa- parallels to the very Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle in which God's holy presence lives and dwells. So this is not some sort of like illicit union between God and Mary, like many stories of Greek mythology or what Muslims often accuse Christian belief or doctrine of, but that Mary will be the vessel of God's presence amongst humanity. This is the incarnation, this theological word for Jesus's infleshing, him becoming fleshed. We'll have way more time in the coming weeks and months to think about his incarnation. But this is God the Son assuming or taking on a new nature. He is both fully God and fully man, or as it has been said, without ever ceasing to be what he was, fully God, God the Son, without ceasing to be that, he became what he was not. This is the first time that God the Son has ever become something that he was not ever before. Human, something new in time and space that had never happened before. Without ever ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. So yes, Mary, all of that is about to happen. And you, of all people in the world, will be the instrument through which God works. Blessed are you, you who have found favor to be this person, to bring about the Redeemer, the Messiah. Oh, and your elderly cousin Elizabeth, who has been barren, as you know, for her entire life, has also become pregnant, Gabriel tells her. Mary is presumably like flabbergasted. Not to mention, she realizes that she is about to be socially scandalized, possibly completely marginalized and disdained as soon as, as her belly begins to show. It's coming very quickly. And so she, you don't quite know the reason. Perhaps she's excited to see Elizabeth. Perhaps she's a little eager to get out of town for a, for a time. She hurries to go see her cousin Elizabeth, which you heard the whole narrative of Karen just read. And even there, when Elizabeth greets Mary, in, even in Elizabeth's womb, John, who will later be known as John the Baptist, begins his work of pointing to Jesus as John leaps with joy in his mother's womb. 
We'll later see him do this. This is what his entire life is always about, about the Lord Jesus, his excitement, his pointing toward the ministry of Jesus. And Elizabeth, not in the least bit frustrated that her younger cousin perhaps now is upstaging her. Can you imagine this older lady who has been longing for conception, been longing for a child her entire life, and then her potentially 14-year-old cousin runs in exclaiming her pregnancy, and yet she is rejoicing with those who rejoice. She's not at all concerned that the spotlight might be taken from her. She is equally, as Mary, overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because blessed is she, the fruit of her womb, her Lord. Elizabeth's Lord is growing now in Mary's womb. She is floored with humility that the woman who is carrying the Lord Jesus would come and see her. Then Mary responds with or to her with the Magnificat. This song. He looks to the humble now. We get this word, the Magnificat, from just the first word of, in Latin, of Mary's song. My soul magnifies, she is saying. Magnifies. She is magnifying the Lord. And many scholars throughout the ages have said that there is no way that some teenage and uneducated girl could have said something so powerfully amazing as this song. This is surely a later creation from an addition from from Luke. She never said these things. Luke is putting these words in her mouth, or perhaps, or that's what's often suggested. But this ignores how well a Jewish teenager would have known her Old Testament, would have known her Hebrew scriptures, forward and backward. And in fact, the Magnificat is basically just a reflection on passages from what one commentator counts up as nine different Old Testament books that we can find references to in this song. This song is a compact summary of God's movement in the earth up until this point. The passage that it bears the most similarities to are Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah equated her barrenness to the barrenness of Israel. God had been silent for decades, and evil seemed to be triumphing in the world and in Israel. But then God began breaking in anew with the promise of his coming king, David. And so Hannah sings this wonderfully theologically rich song about God breaking in anew, about references to the rich and to the poor. All of this is right here. And undoubtedly, in the three- to four-day trip that Mary would have been reflecting on Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2, among others— as she had undoubtedly memorized as a young girl now, she is traveling to Elizabeth's house. She is letting all of these things just seep into her soul. And because of all of this, she says to Elizabeth, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord, or literally, my soul enlarges the Lord. Now, God cannot be made any bigger or greater than he is, But it is our understanding, our vision, our worship of him that can absolutely get greater. His glory growing and crowding out other smaller gods in our life. This is God being magnified in our hearts, magnified in our lives, magnified in our souls of him getting bigger and the other things getting smaller. And this is exactly what Mary is saying. In her soul, in her spirit, all that she is as a human being is rejoicing in God as he is becoming bigger and more glorious in her life. But why does she rejoice? Why does she magnify the Lord? Well, she says, because he has looked on the humble estate of his his servant. 
me. He has looked upon me, my humble estate. Mary was a no-name girl from a no-name rural town in the most forgettable backwoods of the Roman Empire. Why in the world would God choose her to carry the Lord Jesus? Because the God of the universe is coming in humility to serve and not to be served. Even in this first move of God the Son, he is showing humility. Now, of course, God knows Mary's name. God knows even the number of the hairs on her head, just as he knows each of us individually. She, like we, have inherent value and worth as being created in the image of God. But I think perhaps in our American understanding of self-worth, self-exaltation, I think many of us, perhaps most of us, wouldn't be that caught off guard if Gabriel came to us and told us that he was going to use us in extraordinary ways. We might respond with, yeah, that checks out. Compared with most other people, of course God would pick me to do this thing. I've got skills. I've got importance. I've got a pretty valuable and usable resume that he is surely impressed by. In fact, I think the only thing that's been holding me back in popularity and in influence is perhaps just that people don't know me. Or perhaps others have been intentionally mean or cruel and have been holding me back in some ways. Why shouldn't I have a million Instagram followers if only the world knew? So of course, God should come to me, but not Mary. She has no sense of inflated value or worth. He is, she is asking, why in the world would God come and use me? This would be like a teenaged and uneducated girl from like Grants or Deming or somewhere. Apologies if you're from Grants or Deming. But if most people in like New York City or San Francisco think that you need a passport to live in New Mexico, they don't even know if it's a state in our union, then I guarantee you they have never heard of Deming. I'm sorry. But really, why would God come and choose to use a teenage and uneducated girl from Deming? Why would he use her? Why not the valedictorian of a top private school in New York City or Chicago? Or even, why not even a girl who's like in the top 10% of her class in the best high school in Albuquerque? Because of verses 49 through 51. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. Mary is all about his might, God's holiness, God's mercy, his strength, all being the center of creation and what is holding the universe together. It is by his power that he comes to serve and upend our understanding and pursuit of power. If we think about it, we actually would not or should not want God to move through the New York City valedictorian. Otherwise, we might just be tempted to say, yeah, she had really great teachers. Yeah, her parents are really successful and they are educated themselves and they probably just passed along really smart and successful genes. The power doesn't belong to God. It is the power of God, though, that is far greater and better than anything we could imagine. If we think that our education, our upbringing, our abilities, our genetics even, are particularly useful, then your understanding of what God wants to do is actually far too small. Have you ever seen the pale blue dot photograph from Voyager 1? 
1990, after Voyager, this uh, satellite thing that was out there taking pictures of our solar system, after it had accomplished, accomplished its mission in photographing the entire solar system, when it was nearly four billion miles away from Earth, even past Pluto, NASA turned it around. Turned it around to see if it could see Earth. And it took one of the most famous pictures of all time. What you see is several sunbeams moving across space, and there is one pale blue dot suspended in the beam. And Carl Sagan memorably said this, he said, we succeeded in taking that picture. And if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives there. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged, privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. While I disagree with some of Sagan's conclusions, I'm grateful for his reflection. We've said that before, especially when you're thinking about Psalm 8, that one of the greatest things that you can do when you are anxious one of the greatest things that you can do when you are tempted towards emptiness or despair, or even tempted toward an inflated view of your own self, perhaps even an, the nagging presence of sin in your life. One of the greatest things, the best things that you can do is go outside and look up. Look up at the night sky. Observing and reflecting on the enormity of the cosmos should dispel any sense of self-importance. Remember, you are just one of seven billion people alive today, and that's just one of, that, that's just now. There are billions and billions and billions of people who have lived on this earth. You live on a tiny planet which orbits a relatively tiny and unimportant star. When you look up or think, as, think of the earth as this pale blue dot, who is Elon Musk? Who is Messi or LeBron James? Who is Meghan Markle or Kim Kardashian? Forgettable and cosmically insignificant, and so are you. But Mary and the humble Christian can say in light of all that, and contrary to Carl Sagan, but with David in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? That all seven billion God knows, sees, understands more deeply and intimately than we know ourselves. Despite our minuscule and relatively meaninglessness, or relative meaninglessness, God actually then looks to the humble. When someone recognizes their frailty, their spiritual weakness and emptiness, God is faithful and quick to fill them. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. 
which is very similar to what Jesus would say 30 or so years later in the first words of his teaching ministry in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Only those who recognize their great spiritual need, only those who actually hunger for the Lord will be filled. So, so far, I've basically just been perhaps warning against the danger of pride, because that's a regular temptation of mine. But while the Magnificat is a warning, and there is more warning to come, the Magnificat, this song of Mary's, is actually a great comfort to the frail, to the weak, to the brokenhearted. Just as all generations remember and bless Mary for her humility, for her poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit will also eternally receive the kingdom of heaven alongside her, with her, as co-heirs of the kingdom, in the same favor of the Lord. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul says, in clay pots, very fragile and breakable jars. We have this treasure, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the power of salvation and adoption in Christ. We have that in these frail and breakable bodies to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. We are weak, but God is strong. It is not your skills, it is not your competencies or resumes that make you valuable to God. So come to Christ in your weakness, in your difficulty and struggles. He desires to heal you, to fill you with joy and satisfaction, not in yourself or your skills or your competencies, but in him, the one who actually has the power that we are grasping after. In this life, yes, but certainly in the one to come. Augustine once said that for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. If you want to learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. But then Augustine goes on, and the second thing, and the third thing. Humbleness, more humbleness, growing humility, growing humility. If even the all-powerful God of the universe would come to us as a baby, born to an uneducated and unwed rural teenager, born surrounded by unclean animals and shepherds, God made low, then why do we think it should be any different for us? This is the economy of heaven. A growing Christian is a humble Christian, and a humble Christian is a useful Christian. So draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. You have to first feel and understand your need, understand and feel your hunger for him before he will fill you. But perhaps, before I give you the whole so if you want to be humble, just go pray and read your Bible and all of those things, which you should do. Perhaps the first thing you should do is tonight, stay up a little later, go outside when it's dark, and look up at the stars. Remind yourself of your cosmic insignificance. The fact that he knows you by name and cares for you as a son or a daughter ought to drive you not only to worship, but life-changing, life-transforming hope in the promises of God. So if this is the faith that awaits the humble, that he will fill, that he will bless, what awaits the proud? Thirdly now, he scatters the proud. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. While pride is obviously the opposite of humility, why does God scatter the proud? What's his deal? Why does he hate pride? Because pride is, as C.S. Lewis defined it, the complete anti-God state of mind. That's what pride is. An anti-God state of mind. A proud man has no need for God. He's not willing to submit his mind, his desires, his will to that of God's. Lewis would later say that the essential vice, the utmost evil, the essential vice of life, the utmost evil in the world is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. So if you feel yourself walking with a swagger, if you feel yourself thinking disparagingly among, about others because they are not as accomplished as you, if you feel yourself tempted towards self-promotion at the workplace or on social media, if you feel superior to others because you perhaps have better or more precise theology than the church down the street or your neighbor at your workplace or something, if you feel jealous even or covetous toward things you don't have, be careful. It is pride that tells you that you actually deserve what you don't have, and it was through pride that the devil became the devil. But do you see how Mary ties pride directly here to money? Be careful every time you receive a paycheck, whether that be weekly, biweekly, once a month, every time you receive a paycheck, be careful. If you receive a hefty paycheck, your sinful tendency might be toward thinking, yeah, that's right. You're darn right I earned that. Every bit of it, I'm amazing. But on the other hand, if your paycheck is meager, your prideful tendency might be toward thinking, this is ridiculous. I deserve so much more. Does not the world know who I am and what I am worth and capable of? Money can be a slow-acting poison. And especially in Luke's gospel, one of the things, money, that Jesus warns about and teaches about most. Having a lot of money is not some one-way ticket to hell, but it's just that the rich often have no physical or material need, so they can often be deceived into not seeing then their spiritual need. So it's in that sense that Mary says, the rich he has sent away empty. If they have no spiritual need, he will not fill that need because they do not want it. And living in America here in 2022, nearly all of us are more wealthy than nearly every human that has ever lived. So be careful of ignoring Jesus' warnings about the rich because even if you do not think of yourself as wealthy, you are. Relatively speaking, I know you have many friends who are much more wealthy than you, but you Actually, most of us in this room actually do not have to worry about where we are going to sleep tonight or what we are going to eat tonight. That full belly and the warm house can actually act as a slow-acting poison to our spiritual need as well. So be careful. 
pride is utterly contradictory to the gospel. Mary knew this, as she had no business carrying the ruler of heaven in her womb. Jesus knew this as he came to serve and even to suffer. But I'm not sure that we know it. Or at least we can forget it. We get really impressed with ourselves and our accomplishments. But in eternity, we will not be tempted toward the worship of the self. I guarantee it. I think this is what John is saying, that when we see Jesus, we will become like him. We will no longer, when we behold the glory of Christ, be tempted to worship this anymore. We will not be tempted toward worshiping others even for their physical strength, for their beauty, for their money, for their persona. We will see the relative insignificance of everything that has ever happened on the pale blue dot and actually see clearly. We'll only praise and thank God for the good gifts that he gives, praising him and not the gifts. How great is God to have created and saved wretched, weak, frail sinners like you and me. How great is God that he would die that we might live. But it is only the humble and the weak whom he'll save. I think I've shared this before, but I've heard one pastor put it like this. I often hear unbelievers make the statement that Christianity is a crutch. It's a statement intended to insult believers, to imply that only a weak person needs religion. And in our culture, it's a statement that hits its mark more often than not because our culture despises weakness. We do not want to be seen as weak. We want to be perceived as strong. So when I hear someone say that Christianity is a crutch, I agree. I am a guy whose legs are broken. I need that crutch. When I hear someone say that Christianity is for the feeble-minded, I agree. I have a feeble mind. I need the gospel to give me a right mind. When I hear someone say Christianity is something that weak people need, I agree. Amen? Weak people need it. I am weak, and so are you. Perhaps you do not just recognize and admit that you are weak. All of that is a very bold thing to say, but I'm convinced that it's right. But you wouldn't necessarily know and agree that all of that's right by observing our culture, by observing our own lives and our own hearts. Oftentimes, it looks like in our culture and in the history of the world that the powerful get more powerful by exploiting others. The most arrogant athletes and celebrities get the most attention, and their star grows brighter by bringing more attention to themselves. The beautiful really do often live a very privileged life, and the humble and the meek, more often than not, just stay humble. The godly poor live and die without any recognition, sometimes in squalor, sometimes in pain, sometimes in suffering. I don't know if I really believe Mary's song, you might be thinking. Especially since so much of it is written in the past tense. Did you notice that? She says things like, he has scattered the proud. He's doing that now and he has. He's past tense, sent the rich away empty. Not the world that I live in, he hasn't. What's that about? Well, Mary, as an uneducated rural teenager, has now turned into a a very prophet of God. She is absolutely here in the same category as someone like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And Israel's Old Testament prophets would often speak of future events in the past tense. It's as if Mary has been to the mountaintop 
She can see what is to come, and she can like look around in the past, present, and the future and see it all, almost like above time. It's as if God has transported her to the future economy where things actually are turned upside down, where the hungry are filled, where the rich are empty, where the proud are scattered, and the humble actually are exalted. And she then like returns to the present in this moment, and she says, yep, he's done that. In fact, it is so certain this future reality of the true and real economy of heaven is actually now this present reality. Even though it's not my lived present experience, it actually is the true reality now overlaid on top of my lived experience. She says in verses 54 and 55 that God has remembered Israel, has remembered the promises that he made to Abraham. If you're new to the Bible, what Mary is likely reflecting on is that God has promised to bless all nations of the world through the family of Abraham. And here, Mary is pretty clearly tying that promise to the fact that she is carrying a miraculously conceived child in her womb, just like Sarah with Isaac. It's through this child that God will remember Israel, but not just Israel. He will save all nations. I don't think it's likely that Mary understood how God would do this through this unborn Jesus in her womb. I don't think that she likely saw a cross at his, at his end. And as the church is beginning, none of the disciples knew or understood any of that in his ministry as well. But being up on the mountaintop and seeing the heavenly economy as it really is, she knows now that the kingdom of God is breaking in through this baby in her womb. The upside-down nature of the kingdom of God would come through him, that sinners might find blessing at the place of his curse, that the condemned might find life at the place of his death, that we might find glory at the place of his shame, all upside down and unexpected. But this is what God has come to do. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Do you recognize your weakness? It is good to remind ourselves of our weakness, of our ongoing need. Have you had your sins forgiven Have you been raised with him in new life and been given a second birth, far more important than your first? The gospel comes to us unexpectedly in a little town of Bethlehem, and the gospel makes its way to a Roman cross, but it ends in glorious exaltation, both in the exaltation of Christ as the supreme ruler of the entire universe, but in our ultimate exaltation with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. He will exalt the humble with him. But those who will one day be raised and exalted are those who are in this life lowly and humble, would identify with his death. I'm weak and you are weak. We are all weak. And yet he is offering himself in weakness to us in power. If you've never confessed this to God, perhaps tonight is the night that you confess your weakness your frailty, your sin and rebellion. We'd love to help you think through how to ask for, the, for his help. In fact, every time we pray is just a recognition of our weakness, that we need things from God that we cannot provide for ourselves, that only God can provide. 
And so praying, perhaps even the first time, and we would love to help you think through what praying actually is and is for and how you might actually uh, acknowledge your weakness to God. This is what prayer is, an exercise in humility, which is why we need it more and more and more. And so it's to that end that let's do that now together. Let's ask for God's help. God, we recognize our frailty. We acknowledge our need and your power. We just humbly come to you now asking for more and more humility. That's a dangerous thing to pray for because we know that you will give it. And oftentimes, becoming humble comes through loss, comes through pain, comes through anxiety or suffering. But we pray that you would cause us to be people who need you more, who depend on you more, who pray and ask for your help more and more, day by day, minute by minute. Lord, we need you. Every hour, every minute we need you. You are our one defense, our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. Lord, we need you. We recognize our need and we are confident and in faith now asking that you would fill us. That we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Lord Jesus, that you, by your life and death and resurrection, by your giving of your spirit to us, that you might fill us and make us more and more into people of joy and of hope and of love for our own contentment, for our own joy in you and for your glory and for the good of our neighbor and the nations surrounding us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.